Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good evening, good at whatever, and welcome to the Lawrence Delalio being sent off and the USA scoring immediately afterward retrospective podcast, the Squidge Rugby podcast spin-off thing, where we will talk about all the rugby that happened in the USA's game against England from the 2007 World Cup, and I just described it to you right there, because the rest of it was rancid. I am joined, <laughs> as ever, by Mr. Will Owen. How are you doing? I'm alright, thank you, but mainly because I've given myself a bit of distance from this game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't record this immediately after watching it so i think that's that's uh, i'm i'm doing a little bit better mentally you know yeah i think i think i am largely forgetting large chunks of the game yeah because uh, it's a few hours since i watched it and it was properly atrocious yeah yeah it felt like being back in 1987 to me it really did like that was the big thing i couldn't get away from yeah was how much it felt it's like how people always talk about how they want <laughs> there's always this request on on Twitter and so on, and you see it every time they announce a new rugby game, people go, well, why don't they just do Jonah Lomu Rugby and make it exactly the same, but just like update the graphics and the teams? And you're like, Jonah Lomu Rugby is not unplayable, but it's... It's not ooh, great. It's, it's not aged. great. It's aged but a lot. You're, I think the point you're trying to make is this does very much feel like a revamped version it of the game from seven. Yeah, like they reskinned it and gave everyone nicer kits. Well, it's, not nicer kits, but like more professional athlete standard yeah, kits absolutely um it rather feels, than the shirts yeah because we've had like we did the 2011 world cup which we both loved right mm. and we did some shit games in there like yeah, there, yeah. there were some shit games in there but this felt different this felt like an outlier in shit games i think this is a contender for the worst game we've covered on this podcast really i mean it can't be far off it's got to be top 10 hasn't it i think there's there's a couple of games from 87 it was We've done this before, but the Welsh games in 87 were... Was atrocious. Pretty uh, England-Argentina was very bad in 2011. Yeah. And same with Georgia-Romania, but at least those games were closer than this was. Yeah. Because you never thought the USA were going to do anything threatening in this no. game. Like, you've got to respect the fact that they kept the score down and so on. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, it was a relatively close game in the end. That To spoil it, England win the game 28 points to 10. Like, they don't get the bonus point. They score three tries in the end. Yeah. And that in itself is respectable for the USA because they don't want this game to be entertaining, do they? No. They want this game to be respectable and close and they want to play well. It's not the players or the referees or any or the coaches. It's not anybody's responsibility to make the game entertaining for us. The only people who's responsible for that is, is the broadcasters, which we'll come you on to. do sound like Razzy Erasmus, but yes, I agree. Yes. The thing about this is... The USA obviously keep the score down and everything, but in attack, when they have the ball, they are dog shit. Mm. Mm. Oh, I mean, we'll get onto this as we go, but I mean, both teams are bad in attack, but the yeah. USA are pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Like, there is, I think the first time they had the ball, I wanted to, like, cash out on wanting them to win, uh, if that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Because naturally, right, 
as a Welsh fan, every time I see an Eng- um, England playing an underdog, I go, oh yeah, underdog time. Yeah, and I almost always support the underdogs. You yeah. know, if it's not Wales playing, I will almost always support the underdogs no matter what. But I'll tell you what, like, speaking objectively, I was very aware of this England team as one that... Mm. The narrative around this World Cup is that they were quite shit, right? Yes. And I always thought people were kind of exaggerating that. I never believed people when they said that. I always thought they were exaggerating quite a lot. Because they like, make the final. They make the final. They won the previous World Cup and have a lot of the same yeah. players. We'll come on to the England team, right? But I think their first team has a lot of really good players in it. Yeah. Their first team specifically has a lot of really <laughs> good players in it. But yeah, I always thought that was exaggerated. And then I watched this and I was like, maybe they're not so great, but they're the lesser of two evils in this particular 80 minute segment. Yeah, and so it's a really interesting point in sort of English rugby. There's a thing that friend of the pod, Lee Calvert, has always said that England are the worst world champions in any sport, <laughs> that 2003 to 2007 England team, because they immediately, like, immediately went to being shit. Yeah. Like, they kind of dropped off a cliff completely. There was a quote I came across, and I didn't, I've forgotten who it's from. I think it was Ian Robertson, the mm-hmm. former commentator, yeah. who said 2003's team was known as Dad's Army. This lot's even older. Um, <laughs> And it was kind of taken as like, this England team are well past their best. They mm. kind of hit like the end of their prime in 2003 and now they're beyond it. They immediately kind of went off a cliff in 2004, 2005, as we saw them lose to, except for Italy, thus to every Six Nations team over this kind of period. Yeah, They did not perform consistently at all, but they would have odd games where things would start to look pretty good again. You have a point, like, this does feel like an England team who just looks like a load of people's uncles, doesn't it? Yes. That's kind of the vibe of it. There's a lot of nostalgic, like, premiershipy names that oh, prop up we'll in this team. Get into the team, but yeah. So, England played four World Cup warm-ups coming into this. Okay. They battered Wales in both of those games. <laughs> I recall. And they lost to France in both of those games. Right. So, you know, bit of a bit of a different vibe kind of told them where they were standing yeah um it was described as kind of disastrous world cup warm-ups uh in a lot of cases by the fact that they were losing 15 21 to france at twickenham and then 22 9 away with johnny wilkinson That's getting something. injured in that second away game yes and then leading on to missing mm. i mean this this game there was a lot of talk on will he make it will he not in the lead up and boy he did not no but so they spoke about in the the World Cup opening non ceremony, as mm. as we coined it. They spoke a lot about Johnny Wilkinson and his injury and so on. And they also spoke about England's kind of title contention hopes. And they were talking a lot as though England actually had a chance, which is again another reason why I thought it's probably bollocks that they were actually terrible the whole time. Yeah. But it might just be that they set the bar too high, which is often a thing that the RFU and English rugby do when it comes to World Cups. Yeah. That they kind of expect to win every single one. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. In, yeah, and in some ways England's short because they are the team yeah. with the most resources. They are. You know? They are. Um, it's not a, not a terrible prediction. No. They had, as we made this point repeatedly when doing this podcast, a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels to the current situation. Mm. To where we are, you know, heading in just before the 2023 World Cup also in France. And of course, one of them is that A, Andy Robinson had been fired and B, England fired their coach. So Andy Robinson had been head coach of England. He was fired in the December the before the World Cup after losing to Argentina at home at Twickenham was what did it. Which I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone. It does, it does. And it makes you wonder what Andy Robinson said about the private school system that the <laughs> RFU have in place. That really got under their skin. Yeah. Really changed things. 
he was fired, he went... And Brian Ashton, who was very much... There was a lot of people's favourite. A lot of people wanted him to take the job after okay. Clive Woodward instead. He'd been the attack coach under Clive Woodward from 1998 to 2002. And that included the period in kind of 2001, 2002, where England played a lot of their best rugby under Clive Woodward. Yeah. And in 2003, they went very hard after he went. They went very hard into the kicking game and into Wilkinson and into the drop goals. Which won them the World Cup. Which won them the World Cup. But like the year beforehand, they were playing far more expansive rugby. They are playing some really great rugby that kind of sort of destroyed New Zealand, put up some record score lines. Like a lot of people consider that the best period in English rugby was that kind of year just before the World Cup. And then they kind of, they almost were running out of steam by the time they got to the World Cup. And they took that Wilkinson drop goal to get them there. And Ashton had been the attack coach. He'd been a huge part of that. Let me tell you, you wouldn't know. Yeah. You wouldn't know he was the attack coach of like them, you know, the most exciting well, rugby they've played looking at this. So he then left to become the national academy manager instead right. of the attack coach. Mm-hmm. So he managed all the academies across the country for a few years and then went to coach Bath and became Bath's head coach and did a pretty good job there. Meanwhile, Andy Robinson took over and, you know, didn't go, didn't go quite his way. No. So Clive Woodward continued after the 2003 World Cup. He continued on to the following Six Nations to the Tour of Australia, which he was contracted for the end of the season following the World Cup for some reason, sort of thing they wouldn't do nowadays. But it was back in those days where you were contracted through to the end of the season rather than the end of the World Cup cycle. Yeah. And that was very much how they did it at the time. Yeah, and it was slightly less tailored towards the be and end of international rugby just being World Cups at that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. It kind of has become well, the trend. I think now. the 2003 World Cup was the start of that. I think yeah. it was the start of people viewing and that as a cycle you build up to. In fairness, Clive Woodward deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Because he did tailor everything towards that tournament and, you know, making sure that they were the best prepared, most professional team that they were out there. And at the time in 2003, which according to him it still is, <laughs> that was quite revolutionary in rugby. Not many others yeah. were doing that. Whereas now everybody obviously is, you know, as and soon as someone does something well, everyone catches on. A lot of that was him absolutely bombing out in the 99 World Cup. And doing terribly yeah. in the way Eddie Jones didn't in his first World Cup. Yeah. And yet, here we are. So, yeah, he then took over, coached the following Six Nations, where, as I said, like England lost to Ireland, they lost to France, they just about beat Wales and Scotland, so good on them, that's where their standards should be, and then lost unanimously three games in a row to Australia. At which point, Clive Woodward goes off to coach the Lions. Which goes really well for him and yeah. really cements his reputation as rugby's greatest coach. And it, it goes really well for him. It was 3-0, that Lions tour, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. That's such a really good result for someone. But Andy Robinson takes over England instead. And do you know what? His first game in charge, right, gets a massive 70-0 win. Like, it's going really, really well. Okay. okay. The game's against Canada, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> They then proceed to lose again to Australia, and in the following Six Nations is a bit of a disaster, right? They lose to Wales in Cardiff, they lose to France in Twickenham, they then lose to Ireland away again. They manage to scrape it back towards the end, and they just about beat Scotland and beat Italy. But it's all not going too well. Then the following year, they build in, and they the results get even worse. He goes on to to win only three games over the 12 they play that year, which is a familiar number, I think, to Wales fans. Certainly. Um Less so to Eddie, you know, he still had a significantly worse record than Eddie Jones. Eventually, you know, retired with 22 games played, 9-1, which is a terrible record for world champions, Andy Robinson. Yeah, so the, the, the amount of pressure that must have been on them. Like, if you think of our current world champions, South Africa, mm. like when they lose one game, 
the uproar that goes on like yeah. around kind of not just their supporters but like their coaching staff and the playing staff and everything. like they they obviously feel a pressure on them of world champions and that's a good thing yeah you know that that's a compliment to them but for Robinson to come away from that with as I say a, a very good group of players and some <laughs> is it, that's quite startling yeah so that autumn they lost forty one twenty to New Zealand eighteen twenty five to Argentina and 1425 to South Africa. Can I offer you some quick a quick quiz question? Go on. So during the summer, right, they played Australia. They played two series against Australia in one World Cup cycle. There we go. Who was the England captain during that period? Uh, was it... Uh, what year were we talking? 2005. 2006. 2006, 2006 was it maybe sorry. Lawrence Delalio? It was not Lawrence Delalio. Oh, was it maybe... Uh, Martin Johnson. It was not Martin Johnson. He was retired by this point. Oh, I'm not sure. Who else, who else captain from that era? I mean, Phil Vickery's the captain in this game, but I'm assuming it's not him. It was not him. It was not him. Who so, was it then? The captain for the Six Nations was Martin Corrie. Okay. Right? But for the summer tour, it was Pat Sanderson. No. England's summer tour captain by Pat Sanderson. Looking at this team, it's actually stronger than the one eventually played in the World Cup. But... <laughs> Still Ollie Barkley at 10. Wow. Who are some of the players that didn't make it as far as the World Cup that they had? Uh, Ian Bolshaw. Okay, yeah. Uh, they're back three, right? Ian Bolshaw at fullback. Tom Vondell on one wing. Wow. Tom Voice on the other. Tom Voice, Remember him. Yep. He's, I, didn't, I knew he had an England career, but I thought of him as an extremely club player. Yeah. Lee Mears, crisp salesman, starting. Wow, okay, okay. Presumably, this is while he was still building up his business as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very early on. He was only selling crumbs at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. And he's probably only making like 4p per crumb rather than... In fact, that probably worked out a, a bit <laughs> really, stronger really than good. 11p per crumb. Yeah, no, he wasn't getting a success selling crumbs for 4p. Yeah. Uh, not many people were buying that, even in Bath in the noughties. <laughs> so yeah, so England in a weird place. Andy Robinson doing terribly. They fire and they bring in Brian Ashton. They're like, brilliant. We've solved all of our problems. But Brian Ashton arrives and has to look at the players he's got. <laughs> As I say, though, there are some genuinely like world-class players in this England squad. But today we have to talk about this game, which is unfortunate, and the players they picked for this game. So, should we move on to... The- oh, actually, we haven't talked about the USA. Yeah, the um, USA, what, what kind of position were they in, do you know? Weird one. Weird okay. one. I think very much in a kind of rebuilding phase that had taken slightly too long. Right. This was not a vintage USA team, I think, it's fair no, to say. No, um, I think there's a lot of really good players who go on to yeah. do really good things, but they're all quite young. Like, you've got Chris Wiles made his test debut earlier this year in a game against England A, That's funnily it. enough. You've got players like that, like, we'll come on to this, but Takudzu Nguenya makes his first test cap in this game. Same with Marty Moyakiola, like Mike McDonald's in there, but is hardly in the uh, the end of his playing days at this point. Yeah. Same with Paul Emmerich. Like, there's a lot of a lot of players in this team who go on to have like quite successful careers after this, but they're a long way off their prime. So the majority of their team was amateur at this point. Okay. If you look through that team, there's a few of them that were doing contracts at the back of that, as you mentioned, like Wiles and Gwenya and so on. Mm. Paul Emmerich as well. And you have a handful of players like Mike McDonald at Leeds. You had uh, Mike Herkus, who just signed for after this World Cup. From uh, He went from the Scarlets to the Dragons. You have Scarlet a few legend. players like that. You have, just before this game, uh, right before kickoff, Luke Gross pulls out, who was a second row who... I mean, so M- M- Luke Gross's career is fascinating. In the end, the injury picks up in the warm-up. 
rules him out of the tournament, which right. is that's shame. unfortunate. But um, so he was their most capped player of all time at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with him. I think I've heard his name. But... With 62 caps. That's fantastic for the day he was playing in. So, the USA. So Luke Gross, right? He was on a basketball scholarship at Indiana State University, right? And then later Marshall University, which he moved to because he was good at basketball, right? Okay. He then graduates from university and goes, well, uh, he wasn't, you know, he was good enough to be like a really good standard university basketballer, but not good enough to get like an NBA contract or anything. So then just goes like, well, I'll try some other sports. Takes up rugby and inside like a few weeks, right, of taking up rugby and just playing a little bit with the Cincinnati Wolfhounds. What a team. What a team. He is spotted by a man called Dick Best. Best Dick. Dick Best. Dick Best. Dick Best. Who was the head coach at Harlequins at the time. Okay. Uh, this was in 1997. Dick Best. He spots him on like his fifth game of rugby and goes, he's good. Brings him over and signs him for Quinns where he plays six <laughs> games. Wow. Hell of, a, hell of an impression he must have yeah. made. He must have been such a natural talent in every sport. Yeah, that's all, yeah. That's what that tells me. And he must have played a bit of... Do you know what else football. he was? What? Six foot ten. That certainly helps. Yeah. <laughs> Being a second row at six foot ten. He then goes on to, you know, play a bit in, for Rovigo and Roma in Italy before signing for the Scarlets. Plays nine games for the Scarlets in one season there. Goes to Rotherham, goes to Newcastle, goes to Doncaster, goes to Sheffield. Bounces around. Great kinda. clubman rating on him. Absolutely. Bounces around a bit before starting coaching, ending up as the head coach of the Sacramento Express. Sacramento Express. Pro rugby. What a team. Didn't they have, was it Sacramento Express who had Viliami Yongi playing for them? Uh, yes, they, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. I'm afraid they didn't. Oh. They had Mirko Bergamasco playing for them, though. They did. They in did. The no, no doubt scoring loads of tries because yep. that's the double life he lives now. So, yeah, that's sort of Luke Gross. He was not playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he withdrew, leaving, yeah. The USA with a team who had not had a great lead into this tournament. So they played pre this in 2007 in the Churchill Cup and in a couple of warm up matches. In the Churchill Cup, they lost 51 3 to the England Saxons. Oh, so that was the Chris Wilde's debut game, right? I guess it must have been, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really not boding well for either team when England A are pumping. USA and yet England aren't. It's very telling, isn't it? Yeah. You had Stefan Armitage. No, sorry. You had Dylan Armitage, Thompson Ojo. Like the the names in that. Ryan Lamb playing at 10. Wow. It is England Saxons after all. Yep. Was Paul Hodgson playing? I don't think so. Oh. So England scored nine tries and Ryan Lamb only got three of the conversions. <laughs> Three out of nine, a proper Andy Robinson record there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the USA also played Scotland A, where they lost 13-9 to sole try by Rory Lamont in the second half. Ah, oh. uh, That was kind of their big standout performance of the year. They got beaten 52-10 by Canada. They lost to Munster uh, in a warm-up game. They're not in a good place. They're not in a great ideal place. As I say, mostly an amateur team. They were kind of punching above their weight. They'd, hmm. you know, come through and qualifying all right, and then were looking at getting to the World Cup rather than, you know, yeah, pushing on yeah. and challenging uh, there. It was not, not even doing now, team, I think. to be fair. So. But let's say, 
as we said before, like there's an awful like Mike Petrie's on the bench and doesn't get on. Like, yeah, there's a lot of really good players that will go on to have great careers for the USA. They're just starting out. Here. I believe that would have been his first cap, Mike Petrie, as well. Oh well, yeah. As you say, there's a lot of really good players. We're talking the pre-Scully era of the, <laughs> of of the USA rugby, so it's it's never going to be quite the vintage era of the USA rugby that we've seen before. But like, yeah, so. Should we look at the USA team first? Looking at the USA team, I think the standout player in there is the captain, Mike Herkus. Mm. He's probably the most experienced professional player, has played a few years of the Scarlets, and was a, a bit uh, of a fan favourite before the that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a good goal kicker, great rugby 04 player, uh, yes. Mike Herkus. But he's probably the most standout player at the time for the USA. But you also have in the team, Mike McDonald went, to have, went on to have a great tournament in 2011, as we've previously discussed. Chris Wiles uh, is one of their greatest players of all time, mm. was captain for them, got 50 plus caps, uh, got like 2,000 caps for Saracens, was a brilliant player. As I say, Takudzwa and Gwenya, look more on him as the tournament goes along, but you can tell looking at this that they have identified he has pace and they <laughs> haven't yet figured out how to use it. But yeah, he's a brilliant player who we both, I assume, have great memories of watching in his yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and some horrible memories as well. Yeah, that too. That too. I'm skinning Shane Williams in the yes. San Sebastian uh, Stadium. Yeah, Todd Clever in the team as well mm. uh, is, is one that... Uh, I mean, I'm assuming watching this game, this is far be- before his kind of prime, before he played in South Africa and so on. He's a great player. We we like Todd Clever. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Gets referred to by the commentator as Tom Clever at one point. Does he? Does he? I also want to mention one thing about my Herkus that we moved on before I could yeah. get to. I discovered today he is married to a TV presenter called Natalie Michaels, who used to present MTV, now presents Sky News in Australia. I did not know that. Married to Mike Herkus. Good on them. Good, good on, good on both of them. I, I hope that their marriage is serving very happily for them. Yes. Anything else on the USA team while we're there? Yeah, I mean, there's a few players that are just like there's a few really solid players. As I said, like young players who are developing going to come to something paul emmerich's the sort of player who's probably never young yes <laughs> yeah he never made a test debut he always had like at least like 12 caps yeah That's i suppose he was still we say young he was 27 at this point oh, just right, he went okay. on to play for quite a while after this yeah, you know he played yeah. in 2003 and you know had had a good kind of professional career mm. played in ireland and england didn't he and um, wales and wales he played wales he played for the dragons he played for the dragons yeah Wow, I seem to have forgotten about that. Was it very brief in like kind of forty three games for the Dragons? Oh, you're joking! I can't remember that. I should remember that. Yeah, but I like Paul Emmerich a lot. But yeah, like as you say, like he has a lot of rugby left to play and his best rugby, frankly, mm. you know, yet to play. Yeah, also making his debut off the bench is Martin Moyakiolo, who ah. went on to play in 2011. And we also have a test debut for Henry Bloomfield, who I've never heard of, playing at number eight for them. Inaki Basori as well, who was great on the Rugby World Cup 2011 video game. Yes. And had one good game in the 2011 World Cup. Against Australia. Because Australia yes. scores he a try. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Oh, no, he doesn't score. He passed last minute because he never scored a try for the... Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Created the try. Oh, yeah, who was the guy... JJ Gaggiano, he's one. JJ Gaggiano. There we go. What a pull! What a I, I, player. I've not googled that. I've just remembered. No, that. I saw it across your face. It was yes. an incredible thing. They to also, so they have a hooker called Owen Lentz with a, a Z on Lentz, and that sounds like a shitty house DJ. <laughs> it does. There's no way he's a real rugby player. Like he should be opening for Steve Aoki. We all um, know that he played for South Africa at under twenty ones, then shifted to the USA. Right, played for the Maryland Exiles. <laughs> 
That's not a real team. That's Honestly, an unlicensed rugby challenge team. At some point, I could go full Sandy Lomb and just make up a team that a USA team played for. Honestly, if they had MLR in rugby challenge but didn't get the licenses for the teams, <laughs> we, are, we are pretty much rattling them off here. Do we do it? Do we move on to the England oh, team? I think we do. I think we do. So I, I, I referred in a previous episode to the fact that this World Cup was mentioned by a friend of the podcast, Josh Gardner, mm. as the Sean Perry World Cup, which really stood out to me. I could see the distress on your face so, as you record this. The moment I put the game on to watch it, and the first thing that comes up is England team sheet, Yeah, I turn my iPad back off because I didn't want to look at it again. <laughs> I went Jesus Christ and wheezed <laughs> when I looked at that back line. It's one of the most horrible things I've ever had to look at. You can't... I. I want to just read it out so we can... Okay, should we fully... just read it out 1 to 15? Should we just should we alternate? Okay. So, okay. at fullback, at fullback is Mark Cueto. Indeed. So- solid winger sometimes, Mark Cueto. Playing at fullback, you must think that the wingers must be really renowned wingers, and specifically wingers. So, on the right wing, we have Josh Lucy, World Cup winning fullback. <laughs> and on the left wing, we have Jason Robertson, World Cup winning fullback. Yeah. Very strange order to do that in. In the centres, we have Mike Cat and Jamie Noon. And as half... Jamie Noon. And as halfbacks, we have Ollie Barkley and Sean Perry. I will, I will give you my reaction to that once we run through the team. Front row, Andrew Sheridan, Mark Regan, Phil Vickery, captain. Which is all right. The second row, good. Ben Kay and Simon Shaw. That's class. That's great. That is like that is like a world class second row partnership. Yeah. And then back row: Joe Worsley, Tom Reese, Lawrence Delalio. Mm. This, yeah, Lawrence Delalio at this point was, of course, aged thirty five. Okay, okay. Very much in the twilight of his career. Had initially intended to retire before this World Cup, and then last minute was kind of thrown back in. Mm-hmm. On the bench, while we're here, we have George Shooter, Matt Stevens, Martin Curry, Lewis Moody, Peter Richards. <laughs> Uh, Andy Farrell and Matthew Tate, a young, very young Matthew Tate. Now, it's interesting that you said when you saw that team, your instinct was to just switch the iPad off. And yeah, just like, I can't. Do I'm this. not doing this. So that is your way of grieving. My way of grieving looking at this England team was to text Lee Calvert, friend of the pod. <laughs> just to let him know that I was watching this. He's a fan of vintage England um, sure. and, yeah, and yeah. some of the retro players. And when I say a fan, it might mean he doesn't rate them as players. I think he's very much his niche is that sort of player, mm. like the Sean Perrys of the world. So I asked, asked him for an opinion on this back line. And um, what he had to say was, Quater was furiously competent. Noon was just bobbins. That's about right. That about sums it up. Yeah. I just want to mention on the Lawrence Deladio point as well. Uh, Lawrence Deladio had retired. Then, because England were playing so badly, came out of retirement. <laughs> like, he, he announced that autumn he would make himself available for selection again. So, came back out of retirement, played in the Six Nations again, and then went on to play in the World Cup. All of it, like, a year before this, you were not expecting him to be available, never mind to actually play in the World Cup. And this was before he went to any Romanian nightclubs, as he would call them? Oh, no, he was doing that well beforehand. He was doing that well beforehand. He was doing that well beforehand. Yeah, and having some Um, some nice drinks. Yes, spending 30 grand on drinks. Yeah, and typically that's when when Lawrence Dano goes out. We all know this. When when he likes to let his hair down, he exclusively uses drinks to do that. But the very interesting thing about Lawrence Dano and Mike Cat, right, 
mm-hmm. is that Lawrence Delalio had prior to this World Cup already published an autobiography while he was still playing, but when he thought he was retired from England, okay. in which he was incredibly critical of Brian Ashton. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Cat then backed that up, backed up everything he'd said. Oh, no. Delalio then sees England in a disaster and goes like, I'm going to make myself available for selection. Then Brian Ashton takes over as coach and has to pick him. Oh, there would have been an interesting meeting around that with the three of them sat in a room. Brian Ashton sitting them down, just getting the book and going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and then Lawrence Delalio going like, I know, I stand by it all, but I am your best number eight. Yeah, fair enough. You're in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So yeah, so it was all a bit up in the air, weird situation for England. Um, when you look at that team, right, the front five is really quite good. It's brilliant, yeah. You've F- got... Phil Vickery is a multiple lion. Yep. And a deserved one at that. World Cup winner. World-class tired prop. Yeah. Phil Vickery. One of the best tires that will come up He's in this tournament. one no of doubt. the best of the kind of prop that, like, Tom Franz is a really good example of it at the minute. Okay. It just doesn't go backwards. Yeah. Like, uh, that cornerstone ex- cliche, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. If you exclude the one fame, the, now the most famous game of his career, yes. <laughs> where he gets marmalized by the beast. He yeah. was the kind of prop that wasn't necessarily destructive, but, like, he just didn't go backwards. He was yeah. just solid. Yeah. Like, you threw anything at him and he held you out, which is why McGee can pick him for that game, because he went, well, I can pick Adam Jones, who's a far more destructive scrummage and might cause South Africa problems, but or I can pick the guy that never goes backwards. And unfortunately, and no he went backwards. backwards. And he, he went backwards, it backfired. Andrew Sheridan as him. well. Andrew Sheridan, strong renowned for one being one of the most powerful rugby players to yeah. ever live, got hyped up enormously before this tournament, was like... Yeah. Like, almost the Marcus Smith of his day. Sure. He's like the Marcus Smith of front rowers in terms of how hyped up he was. Yeah, but an excellent player. Like, unbelievably strong. Like, you will rarely see a stronger rugby player than him, you know, as you say. Like, really good carrier and stuff as well. Like, I I really rate Andrew Sheridan. And then you have the second row, Mm. which Shaw and Kay, both really good players. Both playing great rugby at the time. Ben Kay kind of at the end of his career. This was kind of his swan yeah. song. And he was slightly still slow down a bit. Player, but like though. it wasn't affecting him much. Yeah. Like it like was still a great liner operator. Yeah. Uh, great around the park. Like would like, hit rocks, do all the selfless shots. He was slightly less effective than he was a few years earlier when he was one of the top five locks in the world. Exactly. You know, it's like he's now one of the top 20, top 15, yeah. said. And we've t- spoken a lot about Simon Shaw before. I think that Simon mm. Shaw is a player we both have a soft spot for. Yeah, after um, the Lions like series. A, fa- the... a favourite English player of both of ours. Yes. Because what I really like about Simon Shaw is there is a certain type of 
second row that you'll see playing second team who is just there because he's fucking massive and he will catch the ball, he will run into people and he will never, ever back down from anything. Yep. Simon Shaw is basically the best at that of all time, aside yes. from Bucky's Borter. Yep. Uh, like, he's one of the best in the world at that. And I've just, I love that about him. And yet, he's surprisingly athletic. Yeah, like, yeah. It's easy to forget that about Simon Shaw. Even in his latter days, like, he still actually had, a you know, a, a bit of agility to him, like, even when uh, he was seizing up every two minutes. Like, I've got a lot of time for Simon Shaw. The other interesting thing in the England team is, of course, on the bench. Okay. Where we have, of course, on that bench, Andy Farrell. We do. We do. And as soon as his name was said, my eyes kind of lit up. Yes. Um, I don't know about you. I've never seen Andy Farrell play rugby before. Certainly not rugby union, because I love rugby league. I'm rugby league. You, you are rugby I watch league. so much rugby league. I sometimes I wish you shut up about rugby league. Yeah, I know, I know. I should, I should really get around to shutting up about rugby league. But I just love rugby league, especially Andy Farrell. He's a yeah. great rugby league player. So he um, made his debut against Scotland at Twickenham in the Six Nations mm. at twelve. They mentioned on the commentary, like Sam Burgess of his day. Yeah. The debate of whether he should play back row or centre. Yeah, and looking at when Farrell comes on, mm. looking at him. I don't think he looks like a back row forward at all. No. Um, he looks no. like a centre who can play fly half, which is exactly what he ended up being. Mm. I, f- I find that mad that they considered him to potentially play back row. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm sure that if he had to fill in there for a half, he would do a job. Yeah. Like, because he's massive and obviously he has the whole hurt arena thing. So, like, oh, honestly, like, did you, did you see in the last 20 minutes? I don't, I didn't see who it was, but there's a point where the, the USA make a break out of their own 22 and s- someone in midfield misses a tackle and just clearly just goes into hiding from Andy Farrell. Like, <laughs> you would. Because, like, there is... Imagine what Andy Farrell was like as a player in terms of driving standards. Yeah, Must yeah. have been insane. Imagine him level. in that team at, after that game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, he, he's... His kind of speeches after the game and so on must have been worse than a lot of the coaches. Yeah. Yeah, I'd hate to... Hate to be on the same team as him because if you made a mistake, you're done. Mm. you'd know about it so we've talked primarily about england so far right but i do want to mention the commentary because it takes them on the 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 video we've got five and a half minutes before they even mention the usa before they mention a player before they mention anything anything other than the england's opposition they'll mention in passing like england of course playing the usa first but then they'll play south africa and then they'll go on to a world cup final and all of this they don't mention the USA at all. There's absolutely... It was before we even got to kickoff, I had written in my notes, this game reminds me of all the worst things about World Cups. Yeah. Rugby World Cups in particular, right? Which is that you have so much coverage leaning only into one side and just peddling bullshit narratives rather than actually looking at the facts, looking at what's going on, looking at the teams in front of them, and namely just looking at one of the two teams. Yeah, I, I have a lot of bones to pick about this commentary, mm. right? And that that was kind of the first red flag I had. Mm. To me, this very much scans as the commentary is done by... And like, I don't want to be unkind about this because people are doing their best, right? And um, as we've said in previous ones that like it's not an easy job right it's not an easy job but there is something about this that just reeks of somebody who watches rugby every now and then as a passing interest yeah and really wants to show that they know about it yeah it had massive man in the pub energy yeah which was like my big takeaway it had massive man in the pub who remembers what happened in last year's six nations and remembers what happened in the five nations in 1998 when he was 12 yeah you know or whatever 
I'm not going to say the name of the commentator at the moment because I don't want to sound like it's like, oh, I'm calling you out type thing because that's not what I want mm. to do. But it's a former professional hammer thrower uh, right, who's okay. usually an athletics commentator uh, and has crossed over to rugby. And it's very clear that rugby's not like his main sport. Mm. And that's okay. Like, it isn't Andrew Cotter's main sport. No. And yet... It's the thing that I got from it, though, is that, like, air of false confidence about it yeah. that really annoyed me. Yeah. Him very, very assuredly talking about this England team and how what contenders they are and having no interest in the USA team whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, the first thing we hear about the USA, as I say, is almost six minutes in, and he just runs through all the players that aren't born in America in the team. Yeah. He gets really frustrated about that throughout the yeah. game. They have so many non-native players and saying, like, these guys should be playing for Tonga and Samoa. America is a country fundamentally built on immigration. Yeah. And like, it's the point in the American dream. It's something to celebrate, man. Yeah. Like, and again, like, you know, I tongue-in-cheek say, like, oh, Owen Lent sounds like a shit DJ. It's cool that they have, like, such a broad spectrum of, like, exactly. nationalities and names rep- represented. That's a good thing. And also, like, it's the USA rugby team you should be happy for them, like, being able to pull in players for, who have yeah, uh, potentially yeah. grown up elsewhere and so on. That They can have these kind of players bolster their team. That's a good thing. That's to be celebrated. Yeah. He also says that England have got coming up the unpredictability of Tonga. Like, we had the same thing in 87 where people would be like, oh, the unpredictable nature of the USA, I think they said, of, of maybe this fixture mm. when Mike Harrison of Wakefield scored two tries. Of course. But this Tonga team in 2007 were not unpredictable. Most of their players were playing in Europe, an awful lot of them were at least. And they had been playing pretty consistently against the big teams and they've been playing big physical bone-breaking rugby. Yeah. It's obviously we'll cover Tonga when we cover Tonga, but this that that Tonga team is probably heralded as their greatest team of all time. It's and up there. It's up there. On paper, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Like they play exactly like you can expect. Like if you look up the Tongan squad from this World Cup, they play exactly as you expect them to. Like yeah, it's the other thing is right. So you, as you say, it takes six minutes to talk about the USA. It's literally as the teams are walking out, he acknowledges all oh, the USA are also there. Mm. He says of Mike Herkers, he does penalties and he also sometimes does conversions. <laughs> that. Uh, so clearly that's him showing off that he knows that they're things in rugby, penalties yep. and conversions. And then when they sing their national anthem, his immediate follow-up line is, Will the land of the brave become the land of rugby? Which sounds like something we would say. <laughs> <laughs> he also starts boasting after that about how I was at the um, Olympics the other year. And I heard that a lot, let me tell you. I was expecting that anecdote to go somewhere. Oh, mate, his anecdote in the second half, but I saw met Johnny Wilkinson's great. Wait, remind me of that. He literally, the anecdote is my eldest son was doing a fitness test and Johnny Wilkinson was also doing that fitness test and Johnny Wilkinson beat him. Brilliant. But he tells it in the most uninteresting way imaginable. It's not, it makes you wish Scott Quinnell was telling it, you know? <laughs> but the other, th- the thing that really annoys me about this commentary is that this guy is so sure in like him being so knowledgeable about rugby that he like corrects the players' decisions and stuff. Oh, And like, yeah. really criticises them and stuff. And like, don't get me wrong, as I say, that's partly what we're doing right now as people mm. who have not played high-level rugby. But it's not even with humour behind it's it or thing. anything. We've had this conversation before, and there are certain commentators working at the minute that I think this is true of, who I think editorialize and will correct things and will be like actually a player should have done this when they make a decision and i don't think that's a commentator's job i think a commentator's job no. is to describe and it's why i don't do commentary and i don't think i'd be a very good commentator yeah um, same well i mean yeah 
I feel it's a world in which I could learn to be good at commentator. I don't think it's what naturally comes to me, you know. Yeah, I um, agree with that on my, you know, for myself as well. Yeah, there was a conversation I had over Christmas, and I mentioned this, but I had a conversation with one co- current commentator about no, who mentioned they don't have a lot of time for a different current commentator, okay. who I think is excellent, who I think both of them are excellent commentators. Okay. Because the other one has kind of a more of a personality, mm-hmm. and this commentator was saying that they didn't believe that commentators should have a bring a personality to a game. Okay. Whereas I quite like the other one delivering it in a kind of charming fashion. Okay. And I think it's an interesting conversation, but I think whether or not you deliver your lines with a level of, is it, of personality, of kind of charm, is a very different conversation to whether you are correcting the players, whether you're saying this should be this. Yeah. There's one commentator in particular at the minute that does this an awful lot, who again, I won't necessarily name. I know who you mean. Um... Who does? I remember last year this particular commentator, though, uh, though the one you're thinking of actually is a different commentator. I don't want to get too deep into the into yeah. slagging off commentators because <laughs> uh, I think by and large the commentators on TV are exceptional. Brilliant, you yeah. Know? Like I, I think the standard of commentary is and really, really good. Seeing commentators like this just makes me appreciate how good someone yeah. like Nick Mullins is. Yeah, someone like Mars Harrison, Mars Harrison, um, Nick Keith, who's been on this podcast, yeah. Sean Maloney, Jamie Lyle, Jamie Lyle. The Sarah Orchard, like Sarah Orchard's fantastic. Yeah. Claire Thomas at the World Cup. There's yeah. so many that we can keep, you know, listing that yeah. are it's, excellent. It's, excellent. We're in a great position for that. Um, like, we've criticised pundits before and so on, but for commentary, yeah. we're in a fantastic position. And there's not a lot of stuff like this happening where people are throwing. Like the thing is, I think that what bugs me is like you have this the colour commentator for a reason. Mm. They are usually the one that's there to provide the opinions and so on. Exactly. And I think that there is criticising a player's decision. But I think that instead of saying they should have done this, you say they could have done this or they might have thought about doing this. The only point Eddie Butler used to make of breaking that kind of just describing what's going on and trying to put it as best he can and do it the gravitas, you know, give it the gravitas and do it it justice was occasionally he'd say if a pass drifted forward. And that was the only time you ever heard his opinion. Yeah. Uh, Or occasionally he'd go, oh, dearie me, um, if someone made a mistake. But he didn't throw any of that in. Bill McLaren didn't throw any of that in when we watched him back on the 87 games. Absolutely. And he was such great company. Yeah. And it's just, I don't want a commentator's opinion. Yeah. I don't, or no, at least I don't want them to be correcting stuff. There's a time and a place for it, I think. There's like, someone that came to mind for me a lot because I was thinking, I really wish this game was being commentated on by someone like Wim Griffith or Bob Simmons or someone like that, who like... It, it, I don't mean this offensively aren't in the same class as Miles Harrison or Nick mm. Mullins right but they're quite like I would say inoffensive commentators who are really good at their job really good at just describing a game as it is and occasionally might go that's really poor that, that thing's happened the, and say an opinion about it like, and it's fine because it scans well as well like you can just Ryan drop Nugent. them in a broom cupboard and go here's a game taking place in Parma here are the team sheets and they have a level of knowledge that means they will know 90% of the players anyway. They Absolutely. have a level of professionalism that means that they will just deliver excellent, very listenable commentary that will just make sure the game is as good as the game is. You know, they never, you'll never ever see a game that is ruined by, you know, like 100%. a commentator like a Bob Simmons, 100%. like a Wim Griffiths, like a, a Ryan Nugent. Yeah. Um, who are just really good at their job, yeah. you know? And I'm really grateful to have commentators like that on the television. There's a point where this commentator... So there's a point... Josh Lucy mm. uh, does a kick through for Jason Robinson to chase. And you think, you know what? Pretty good decision. Jason Robinson, as we will get on to, 
is rapid. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprise, surprise. And on the commentary, he is the main commentator. As soon as he does it, he says, I'm really shocked and disappointed in Josh Lucy. I'm shocked that somebody as experienced as him would do something like that. Like, put a kick through for his rapid mate, Billy Wiz, outside him to chase yeah. inside the opposition 22. Like, what are you on about? And there's, there's another point. They bring on... They, Bring on Andy Farrell, mm. and he says, oh, personally, I would have brought on Matthew Tate. I think he's a bit more creative than Farrell. No one asked. Yeah, when Lewis Moody comes on, he says, that's exactly what I would do. Who cares? Who gives a shit? It reminds me of, I remember we went to see the Un-20s play, Wales Un-20s played New Zealand years ago, and it was like a triple header. Uh, we went to see that in Manchester, and there was a guy sat behind us who was clearly with a bunch of his mates, and they were all like, grew up with like, men in their 50s, who'd come to watch the rugby. Fair enough, grand. But there was one of them who really wanted to show off he knew more about rugby than the rest of us and would constantly bring up, it was like two players he knew. And he would be like, oh, that's, you know, it's uh, Jim Mallinder's son, actually. Um, he's coached in the premiership and he'd constantly say, like, oh, he's a fantastic footballer. And he used the same three buzz phases over and over again. Oh, and he was so annoying because he was so sure of himself. And at least when I'm at a rugby, I have the good grace to say it under my breath, I'm not that loud. Yeah. As anyone who was like at the Liberty Stadium around me the other week, I when I was moaning about the Ospreys not kicking enough, I was doing it under my breath. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, there was a lot of really frustrating moments of stuff like that, and it's mm. just like I felt like that wasn't the, his role in this commentary team. They had him and David Soul, who I I liked on the co-coms. I think that yeah. clearly he got sick of the man next to him by the second half, but. Like, he brought a lot of really good opinions to this, David Soule. And, yeah, and um, once Barry, like, tunnelled his way under Edinburgh to save a man's life. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. To save Christian Raducanu. Raducanu. Of course. Of course I forgot that was him. But yeah, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's Final easy for point. us as people who've never yeah. done commentary to get oh, into absolutely. the art of commentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it? And but the game I, of rugby. I think this is a rare exception because it was so annoying. Yeah. And it like made a game that could have been like a four out of ten game, made it into almost unwatchable yeah. dreck. I think my it was one, the intentions I didn't like. Yeah. Rather than the commentary. You can you, you yeah. My one final note is that because the other thing is they keep mentioning Johnny Wilkinson. Yeah. It's constant. Clearly they're told to. Um, um I kept a count. By kickoff, they'd mentioned Johnny Wilkinson nine times. He didn't play. He wasn't playing. He'd been mentioned more than any player on either teams. Like they mentioned Johnny Wilkinson eight times as many as they mentioned the USA. And clearly, yeah, I say that's the directive like, of ITV to do They that. mentioned Johnny Wilkinson more times than all of the USA team put together. That's ridiculous. That is, I mean, we covered this before when we spoke about Martin Johnson sticking up mm. for him. It's so unhealthy. Yeah, like they're, they're trying to do that to Johnny Wilkinson because he is a much better player than than that. Like. Um, but at one point, Ollie Barkley takes a penalty after about half an hour to put England 6 free up. Yes. And they cut to Johnny Wilkinson in the crowd, and he is, like, politely clapping. And the commentator says, Johnny will be thinking, that's exactly what I would have done. He's a great reader of the game, is Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, he does read the game that like in the way that, like, if you kick it off the kicking team, it goes through the post. That gains you three points. Yeah, he exactly. plans that out. He'll be thinking, that's exactly what I will have done. He's done that so many times. Yeah, I'd have kicked it through the poles yeah. as well, actually. I, I would have not missed that one. Yeah, it's a good idea there, Ollie. Well done. There is a point where I, I look at the England attack and think, like, they need Wilkinson. Um, yeah. There's a couple of points like that. And actually, like, 
are we getting into the game? Yeah. I feel like we are. Because, like, <laughs> there's a point, like, shortly after kickoff where I go, wait a minute, we've got Sean Perry and Ollie Barkley as our par- halfback partnership. Not for England Saxons, for England it in the World Cup. Ollie Barkley at 10 was the thing that really threw me. The really Not shocked even at 12. Me that was like, I no. didn't even realise he had a stint of being, like, one of their big hopes as a fly half. Yeah, and don't, I've liked Ollie Barkley. Mm. I've liked watching it, like his latter career kind of stuff for Bath. I always had really good memories of him, and like it was a player I really enjoyed watching. But I didn't see this coming. The thing that really shocked me to discover, right, was Ollie Barkley was six years into his Test career at this point. You're joking. He made his debut for England in 2001, so he would have been in contention to go to the World Cup. They won. Yeah. Like, he was not... I assumed when I saw this, it was like, oh, promising youngster Ollie Barkley. No. A lot of people will listen to this and go like, oh, these bloody Gen Z rugby fans like weren't alive when bloody Ollie like, Barkley started playing, which is literally what, what we're doing. Like, we're we retrospectively was, learning this. Like, he just turned 26. That's wild to me. Yeah. Like, I assumed he picked up, like, four caps. Yeah. In, like, the... I mid- figured he'd been playing for about a year before this, for yeah. England. And you'd think so from, A, the way that he plays. Yeah. And the way that they talk about him as this youngster mm. who's like, they're blooding to come through. I figured it was like a 21-year-old, but no. It's like, we need to no. make some backup for Wilkinson, which yeah. is entirely valid. The thing about Ollie Barkley in this game, he makes a lot of line breaks, right? He, mm. he, he makes genuinely probably four or five line breaks throughout the game, which are most of them really, really good. And he makes great decisions off the back of them. But... I think looking at Ollie Barkley in this game, if a fly half had that game now, you'd think it's really poor. Whereas actually, you think about it, like for the time, that was probably a really, really good game he had. Yeah. Um, because as I say, he made loads of line breaks, like did a couple of really good kicks. Like he was pretty good off the tee, got what, five out of six kicks he was offered. So like, you know, all round, that's a very good performance. It's for not Barkley. bad. Yeah. yeah. Ollie Barkley also, another, you have a string to his bow beyond being a fly half come centre was that he started, shortly after this World Cup, contributing to an online magazine. This is his other big thing. An online magazine called Blokely. Okay. Which is a good leading point. It's founded by a man called James York, who billed himself as founder bloke. Oh, this right? sounds really Their random. about them page has an alpha gorilla. Because it's... <laughs> blokes! You love blokes! These people all sound really secure in who they are. Absolutely. The amount of gym memberships in this <laughs> on this website must be Mate, the amount of links they got for Christmas. Yeah. He says, I've never found a men's lifestyle brand that truly reflected my views, showed honesty, and maintained a positive tone towards men. So I decided to make one, Carpe Diem. He's definitely out there, like, preaching for men's equality and equal rights for men. Really sounds it. So their regular contributors, here it says, include XFM's Dave Berry, England rugby player Ollie Barkley, comedian Josh Howie, ex-England cricketer Ryan Sidebottom, and actress Kellyanne Lyons. And we're not stopping there, we've got more people in the pipeline. Hold on, they've got a woman in there? They've got a woman in there. Holy shit. To talk about men's problems? Bloody woke nonsense. This This is so woke. We strive to be the best men's lifestyle site on the web. We strive to be honest, open and engaging, not waste oak loads of paper, treat our readers with, readers with respect, cool, focus on what it means to be a modern man, consider what girls want from us men, 
Not what women, what, no, girls what girls want. I feel like I'm listening to the Egg Chasers podcast. <laughs> Avoid salacious or brainless content. Definitely not Egg Chasers. Yeah. <laughs> Evolve where print magazine mere mortals cannot. Okay. Please do not uh, avoid brainless content. Do not. So, please keep listening to our podcast. It's pretty hard to find Ollie Barkley's actual articles for okay. him, right? Though he wrote one on grooming and his grooming routine. Oh, Jesus um, Christ. Can, can you tell me about Ollie Barkley's grooming routine? I can't find the article, I'm oh, afraid. Um, there's an interview of Josh Widdicombe, which unfortunately was not by Ollie Barkley. <laughs> would have been great. I cannot imagine a more contrasting dynamic. Like, no. the, the thing about Ollie Barkley is he probably wouldn't get that anything he was saying was a joke. But then he'd probably come out and go, he's actually quite funny, to be fair. So yeah, he's a comedian. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's film reviews, and I can't find... None of them seem to be by... Ollie Barkley. Okay, okay. Um, you know what's like, really interesting? Ollie Barkley didn't do the review of Breaking Bad that oh, they posted. I'm gutted. It's really interesting, actually, because, like, as I say, I've always been quite a fan of Ollie Barkley, but I don't know how much of it is tainted by him not going to see Paul McCartney. Well, that's the thing. Can you please talk, tell us about that? Because yeah, this is an Ollie Dar- we, Barkley deep dive We now. did briefly talk about this with Ben James on the oh, did we? series. Okay. But uh, for anyone who's not listened to that, there is a video out there of... Ollie Barkley saying that he'd got offered tickets, VIP tickets, to see Paul McCartney side of stage at Glastonbury. And he turned them down because Paul McCartney is so old. But it wasn't only that. Like, he was offered side of stage because his barber is Paul McCartney's tour manager's brother or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And so he said, oh, mate, we can give you side of stage access for Paul McCartney's set. Legendary set. Like, mm. already, what, six months on, has gone down as, like, one of the most like well-renowned Glastonbury sets of all time. Literally one of the... He, he was in the Beatles. Did you know he, that? What? Ollie Barkley. No way. I mean, Paul McCartney <laughs> was in the Beatles. And they said like, oh yeah, so you take it? Do you go and see him? He was like, no. Like, of course I didn't. So he's 80. What's he's he going to do? Do you want something great? Go on. There is, of course, on Blokely, a review of Paul McCartney live. You're joking. Which is basically like, he's really great and then you will be an idiot to disagree. <laughs> yeah. Up yours, Ollie Barkley. So yeah, the... I, f- I feel like that's really clouded my opinion of Paul, uh, not of Paul McCartney, of Ollie Barkley. Just the fact that he turned that down. I said this before when we had Ben James on. I waited five hours at the front of that stage for it. Like I'd have bitten Ollie Barkley's hairdresser's hand off for that. So I'm gonna. I've found one piece by Ollie Barkley for this website. Okay, right? I found one piece intact. All There's right. only one piece that the Wayback Machine is able to salvage, which is Ollie Barkley. Three days in the life of a professional rugby player. Okay, okay. This sounds interesting. Okay. I'm just going to read the start and then we'll skim over the rest. I haven't read this in full. Facebook, coffee, tweet, coffee, a few ways, coffee, tweet again, some analysis on shiny new computers. Facebook, eat enough food to sink an armada, tweet about it, then bet. I want to point out his use of capitalism is all over the place. Chatting to various people from all walks of life, over the years, I've got a pretty good idea what it is that 80% of the rugby public think constitutes our working day. Over the next 700 all words, I'm going to straighten a few of you out. He loves caffeine. (laughs) Yep. That's for certain. It's coming across both in his uh, insane intake of coffee and also just the way he's writing. So, Ollie Barkley, I want you to bear in mind, is Alan Partridge as I redo this next bit. Okay, okay. They say the only certainties in life are death and taxes. Well, for me, there's a third. My ongoing battle with the snooze button. (laughs) (laughs) The best thing about that, that's a really good turn of phrase. It's so partridge. 
No matter how early I go to bed the night before, I wake up like some sort of orc from Middle Earth. <laughs> a morning person I am not. I used to roll out, roll out of bed at 8.15, neck a protein shake and the recommended pills for the day and oh, rattle my way to Bath University for a 9am start. These days, in order to get the maximum possible, training looks very different. I feel like he just literally is the guy off Don't Drop the Egg. <laughs> yes. My main meal of the day now consists of a smoothie of skimmed milk, oats, frozen fruit, mixed nuts and protein powder, which, after going in a blender, <laughs> is ready to give me just about the right amount of proteins, fats and carbs I need to put on muscle mass and weight from training. <sighs> Nick Abenden makes poached eggs. There you go. Okay. That that scans. That scans. Yeah. He was living with him at the time. Okay. That also um, scans. You know what? His writing is not as bad as I was expecting. Okay, but, fair enough. I mean, his grammar is all over the place, like, but you know what? That's what caffeine does to you. There's a bit where he's talking about how much he regretted watching the A-Team on ITV2 last night. Ah, okay. Not manly which, enough for him? Not manly enough for him. It's a real shame. Though. Just, it's all, it's all incredibly partridge. <laughs> I didn't see that bit coming of uh, mm. Ollie Barkley being a bit of a partridge, but... Fair play. I mean, him writing for a men's magazine is already a step further than I expected. Ooh, 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 ooh. Okay, so Ollie Barkley would, at the end of each of his columns each week, right, he would finish with his track of the week. Okay. This was his Some own bangers. idea. This was not included in any of their other columnists. All right. So his track of the week for this week was Strobe by Dead Mouse. <laughs> I don't know the song, but... It, again, Ollie Barkley being into Dead Mouth 5 doesn't surprise me. It was only a matter of time before the inevitable reared its head. For those of you that follow me on Twitter, you'll not have an unhealthy passion for everything Dead Mouse touches. It's not easy for me to pick out a gold medal from his vast collection, but Strobe is a piece of progressive house genius. Okay. Turn your phone off and lock your missus in the basement. Oh my Strobe is God, worth what? it! Oh my fucking God! <laughs> that Ollie Barkley! out of nowhere! Oh, shit. Oh my god, I didn't see that bit coming. He's really passionate about that song. To the point at which he's holding his wife hostage. A bit at the end of the a bit at the end of his column where Ollie Barkley announces just admits to being one of the fill pots. Oh my god. He's locked his missus in the basement while he can listen 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 to to a bit of Marvin Lentz. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) That took a really unexpectedly sexist turn. And I know, I know that this magazine is very much for lads, 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 and for lads. lads. What can you say? But, oh my god! I thought, I thought he would draw the line at like I am addicted to protein shakes, yeah, rather than like I'm going to lock my misses up. <laughs> Jesus Christ! His previous track of the week was Groove Armada. Okay, Sun Toucher. Okay, um, I don't know that one. Over the years, Groove Armada have pioneered a unique combination of funk, electronic, and house, supplementing their melodic tunes with guest vocals from one end of the musical spectrum to the other. Fair play to you, Ollie Barkley. Yeah, don't mind a bit of Groove Armada. What's that song called? Super Styling? That's a banger. Yeah. And is it Groove Armada who do that? I see you, baby. Shaking that. Oh, that's is that them? them. That's that them? them. Right, that's okay. Them. That seems like exactly the sort of music Ollie oh, Barkley That's exactly what I was expecting. <laughs> this is such a deep dive. He talks about how the World Cup was really big for growing the audience of everyone and like for the amount of sponsorships and so on. Talked about this 2007 World Cup in this article. Okay. But I'm skimming over that because I want to see his other track of the week. Yes, uh, I want to see, see his a other third, track, third track, track of the week. And then I've, we will move I, back to the game. I feel like I should pr- try and guess it based on that, those first two. There was what, what kind of era is this? Like This is from 2011, these 2011. 
Oh, no. Oh, to be fair, no, I won't bother guessing. In February 2011. Uh, I, no, I bet he's into, like, uh, David Guetta or something like that. That would be, like, a, uh, or, like, Martin Garrix. It would be something like that. I'm going to kick this off with one of my favourites. It's not often that the remix is better than the original. Oh, dear. Jump in if you ever know and work out where I'm going. But Reva Star has outdone himself on this one. You can find Rebo- Reboot Enjoy Music on Deflected Records, a unique bass with the best vocal I've heard in years. Make sure your bass is ramped up and your neighbours and misses are out. <laughs> so, he, he's, we've also learned he lives next door to women. Yeah. Bloody, tell you what, bloody Ollie Barkley, right, is Mrs. Hates Music. Yeah, she does. Is Mrs. And as he refers to also, it. Also, he hates his missus. <laughs> yeah. That comes across very heavily. He published this pub- like publicly. Like, she would have probably looked at this and gone like, oh, Ollie, it'd be good to read some of your article. Like, it's really good. You know, being supportive. He's like, yeah, skip the track of the week bit. Sorry, sorry, Ollie, this is really nice, but the bit about you planning to lock me up, can you just explain that for me, please? (laughs) Do you you have to do it every single time? (laughs) I just really like that song. Do you have to publish the details of the box? There's a there's a weird bit about tonguing French women in this piece as well. Oh, so let's not do that. Let's today. not do that. Well, maybe um, maybe maybe another episode. Also talks about James Haskell tweeting about the Louvre. Um, no, he isn't. No, he's mostly posting about how he's done more for women's rugby than anyone else ever. <laughs> I think we should put a lid on the Ollie Barkley deep dive for the I time being. I absolutely agree with you. Um, maybe another episode, eh? We've got to talk about the game then, haven't we? We've got to talk about it's the bloody game. bloody shit. Like, we've danced around it for like an hour, but yeah. it is shit. One of the first notable things... I mean, as you say, there's an exchange of penalties. Mike Kogokas goes this really ambitious one for 45 metres and just strokes it over really casually, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they get 6-3 up. And, like, the first time I got, like, rem- a remote, like, buzz in the game is when they first give it to Jason Robinson. Yes. And, like, he doesn't actually go oh. forward, but he beats, like, four defenders. Jason and I'm like, Robinson. oh, please, just keep giving it to him. Jason Robinson getting the ball for the first time is a great punchline. It certainly is. It certainly is. And like, every time we got the ball, in fairness, it just felt like, we do not deserve you in this game. No. Billy Wiz. The other moment of standout in that first half is when it's 6-3 to England... Mike Herk has taken an interception on the way. Yeah. And you're starting to think, oh, this is, this could be it. This could be the USA taking the lead. Go, Herkus, go. Like, you really cheer for him at that And point. then, as you see the other players closing in, you realise, oh, if this, if he did score this, if the USA did finish this, then Ruddy Dart would never finish posting the clip. It would be going on forever <laughs> yeah. when the USA led England. Um, it's fascinating. Like, as soon as he takes that interception, you just think, where is Nguenya? Yes. Like, you yeah. immediately just start scanning the peripheral, like, for Nguenya. Because, retrospectively, we know that he is, for anyone unaware, he's probably the fastest rugby player on the planet at this point. Yeah. Like, and that may be confirmed in a later episode. But uh, he's he's one of the fastest rugby players to ever live in the 15-a-side game. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable. But just doesn't get there quite in time. Like, uh, Hercus has to kind of, like, arc and feel a little bit. And Hercus, great player, not known for his pace at all. No. And this was quite an old Mike Hercus as well. He'd been yeah. around the block and yeah. slowed down by this point. But, you know, you think that if Nguenya... And if the USA get another so, intercept later in the tournament, Nguenya yeah. might get himself into a position where he might be able to finish it. We'll see. Know? We'll see. So he managed to get the pass to Paul Emmerich. Yes. Right? At which point, Phil Vickery you misses the tackle, boy. then sticks his leg out and trips him and gets a penalty for it. Like, a penalty to England. Proper professional foul. Like, yeah. You say he trips him, he properly kicks him in the leg. Yeah, yeah. To, like, properly finish him off. And 
I never like to do this when it's something that could potentially be dangerous because, mm. like, if you get away with something, that just makes it a try-saving tackle by the letter of the law. But that is actually dangerous and should have been yellow-carded, yeah. which is where I kind of, like, draw the line on my stance on cheating is if it's dangerous, which that was. But, yeah, he completely gets away with it. Like, Paul but, Emmerich just has this look of, like, this is bullshit. The other thing is, because of the TMO laws at the time that could only comment on tries... It goes up on the big screen. Crowd starts booing. No one can do anything about it because the yeah. referee missed it in real time. And he goes over to choke with his linesman like, are you going to tell me that you saw it at the time? <laughs> and they're both like, well, we didn't. Hypothetically, if you saw something, that, whether it was in the big screen or in real time, hypothetically though, do you reckon there is a chance that Vickery might have tripped that guy up? She's like, I don't know. I'm not allowed to say. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, the next England thing, get the penalty and clear it. Like, yeah, next thing I've written my notes straight afterwards is this is terrible. Why is it 1987 again? <laughs> there's, yeah, there's there's a few points. Like, there's a point, like, they have quite a few attacks. There's one where they try to grubber in behind. You're like, oh, yes, it's the first try. And they somehow blow it. Like, yeah. Wiles saves, uh, saves the USA. There's the USA centre, Vaha Asika, mm. gets a yellow card for a really dumb, like, hands-in-the-rough yeah, thing. Like, I have no idea why he really goes for it. But I have, what I have written down here is a seeker dumb, <laughs> dumb yellow, but to be honest, it's just nice to feel something. <laughs> yeah. It's very much where I got to. Because then, just nothing had happened at that point. No. I mean, so the, as you mentioned, like, the first time the USA get the ball, and they set up, and Mike Herkes is about 20 metres away from the ruck, and there's no one closer than him. Yeah. And so... Not only does this mean there's no threat at all, because everyone is so far away. Yeah. No one is, like, offering any lines off him. It's literally just, like, hands down the line, but 20 metres back. So the defence has all the time in the world to walk up and just... And it's such a long easily. pass that you can just go up while the ball's in the air. And I'll tell you what, I did not know much about Chad Erskine, the scrum half. I'd never heard of him. But he is not the best passing nine in this tournament, I think it's safe to say. He's not as good as George Gregan. I'll no. put it that way. If he had some kind of deception or something off him, that would have helped him out big time. Yeah. But the fact that it was just, as you say, Herker stood 20 yards away with a couple of people maybe running something off him. Uh, it just meant that four or five defenders didn't have to mark a space on the field yeah. and could all just mark up against him, fly up on him, steal the ball off him. It's the easiest thing in the world to defend. So he was a, Chad guy in the scrum half, mm. was a South African who failed to get a contract anywhere in South Africa okay. and went to America. And clearly, like, there's a point in the second half where Herkus is waiting in the pocket to clear it and he chucks it over his head and over the dead ball line or towards the dead ball line. And he just sort of has to scramble and, like, it's a nightmare. Yeah, feel for him a little bit. Yeah, but he was not a great passer. He was clearly playing above the level he was confident yeah, with. Yeah, and that's fine. Uh, which happens. Which happens. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult skill. Like, And they had Mike Petrie on the bench. So hopefully we'll see them develop one of their best nice professional era there. 100%. Um, but yeah, so they're asking a lot of him. They're asking not much of Mike Herkus. And n- nothing is going to come of that attack. It's so badly coached. Yeah. It just looks absolutely... And it's easy to say that now with hindsight, now with structure, yeah. now with everything that's developed in the last 15 years. But it's a terrible looking attack that is never going to go anywhere. No. And they ne- they never look like really breaking England down. Like The intercept is the only chance, yeah. time in which they look like they're going to score. Yeah. And that includes the one they do score later on. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of scores, should we look at the first try in the game? Well, so... I don't know how it happens. So England make a nice little break... And Jamie Noon then trips up Josh Lucy, and somehow they score from it. 
Like, I looked down to wrote down, Jamie Noon has just kicked Josh Lucy in the leg and tripped him up. And then I looked up and England was scoring. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't realise it was Jamie Noon. I thought the sniper had got... No, Josh no, no. Lucy, Jamie, but... Lo- Jamie Noon kicks him in the leg. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Josh Lucy makes a really nice break there. Yeah. Like, He's quick, he's really agile, steps inside a couple of men, and you think, yeah, go on, Josh Lucy. Like, you want him to finish that, but there's a good cover- covering tackle comes across, and then they feed it out to Wally Barkley, who has an unbelievable amount of time on the ball. Like, well, no, no he, one comes near him. He has that time because Ben K buys it for him. Oh, does ben he? Ben K times his run and then times the pass perfectly. Okay. Like, it's really great by Ben K. In a way that none of the England backs were able to do that. Mm. None of the England backs were able to bring the amount of time. I miss the ball the way he he arcs around last second around and then holds the ball up until someone commits and then picks it up. Really, really great by him. It's one mm. of those moments where you can see, oh, that's why he goes on to be a really good analyst yeah. on TV when he retires because he was able, he's capable of those sort of moments in his playing. Got career. a lot of time for Ben Kay as a pundit. Yeah. He's really, really good. Yeah, that's a really good spot. I, I didn't see that, but yeah, like Oli Barkley just has like five seconds to make a decision, yeah. and eventually looks up, realizes himself, probably without a call, that the crossfield kick is on because there's like three men out there, completely unmarked, and he crossfield kicks it. And I was delighted to see Jason Robinson being the one to catch the ball. And oh, sorry, I was thinking the wrong try. Oh, were you? Yep, I was looking at the other try afterwards. I, I mean, they're basically the same. The yep. um, like. They both start with a Josh Lucy break. Uh, Sorry, completely so. makes that up. Oh, I yeah. realise the Ben K t- pass you mean now. I, I also have written down there, nicely timed pass by K. I also have written down that the, in the stadium they were playing I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor by Arctic Monkeys because nice. that was like a fresh hit at this Ollie point. Ollie Barkley, his track of the week now. Yeah, well, um, only for the remix because it's true. typically it's better than the original, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, just, no, no, that cross kick is really good option by Barkley. Yeah. Just really composed, accurate. Jason Robinson scores. Like I said, yeah. great punchline. Jason yeah. Robinson gets the first try. And that's it. Second like, touch of the ball after half an hour. It and felt he scores. great the first time we've watched a World Cup game with Jason Robinson playing in it that he scored the first try. That yeah. Felt really yeah, yeah. fitting because he's a player I've got a lot of time for and like can't wait to just see as much content of him as possible yeah he's obviously brilliant well we've covered the next try then yeah we've covered the next try that, that was scored through. by Ollie Barkley yeah as you say uh, that's almost immediately by, afterwards by Ben Kay it's a good line by Barkley as well like, yeah, to finish yeah. that off there's a really funny point where Simon Shaw tries to take a Gwen you're on the outside <laughs> <laughs> and you, you should probably guess that ended up with him going into touch there's um, Simon Shaw the other thing that happens around that period is one of the worst moments of full-backing defence by Cueto. I thought generally had an all-right game. Yeah. So yeah, most of yeah. the England team are pretty shit, but Cueto plays pretty well. Yeah. At one point, Cueto fills in at nine, does a much better job than Sean Perry ever does. In terms of both getting the ball out quickly and then the next phase, he engage, has a little snipe and gauges someone offloads and creates a meter. But at one point, the USA get it wide, right? And they get it out to Cecily Seeker, the right winger who literally just jogs in a straight line. <laughs> and Kuwaito starts backing backwards, like giving him room, when all he's doing is running in a straight line towards Kuwaito. Like, come up and make the tackle. But Kuwaito just waits and waits and waits and lets him get well into the 22. Like, he makes about 20 metres. Just because like, do you want them? Do you want these 20 metres? Come and get them. Come and get them. He's running backwards. Is that the one where Seekham has the break and Jason Robinson makes the try to have him tackle on him? No, uh, we come back. no, because that also happens where mm. Seeker makes that break and Robinson comes out of nowhere and dislodges the ball. I suppose in a way the USA did look like scoring there a little bit, but like mm. no one's skinning Robert Robinson, are they? No. Like, but yeah, that was a brilliant covering tackle. But like the USA's ball was just so slow that they had about two moments where it was fast enough to and get it going. Like it was kind of flukish at times, wasn't amateurish it? Amateurish nine with 
forwards who aren't coached to create breakdown speed. Yeah. Like, I have seen triple rollovers where the ball gets out quicker than here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. There's a there's a point where like the ball is so slow that Mike Hookers just catches it about 45 minutes out from the goal line. Has no idea what to do. So just randomly attempts a drop goal. Mm. And in fairness, yeah. 45 yards out, blinding shot that would was. have put them back within eight points. Yeah, like, he was just beneath the, the crossbar. Like unbelievable shot from 45. But the, we're rattling through this game. We are. Um, we have to. On the second half, there is a moment. There's a kind of a period where after England's got both their tries, the first two tries in the last five minutes of the first half. Yeah. And then they're kind of frustrated for a bit. They do manage to score again on about 50 minutes, mm-hmm. where they just end up five metres out from the line. And Tom Reese taps the ball and doesn't score, but it's awarded. What I have written down for that try is Tom Reese taps the ball and puts it down over the try line. Yeah. That's, or he that's tries to. I think he does get it down. I think he does get it down. But like the USA were extremely not ready for him to tap that ball. <laughs> no. They were they were thinking like, oh yeah, he's definitely passing it elsewhere. And they were, it, it was a little bit like an under-14s defence marked against the biggest player. And like Tom Reese punches above his weight. I think he's... Yeah. Yeah, he carries pretty well. So. But then he was supposed to be the greatest player of all time. Was he? Well, do you not remember this? Do you not remember the Tom Reese hype train? No. Oh, he was enormous. Tom Reese was basically seen as he will be England's Richie McCaw if you but then he kept getting injured. I don't remember that at all. Oh man, wait until Lee and so on are on this. Like okay. no, the Tom Re- Tom Reese hype train was one of the biggest you've ever seen for a forward. Jeez. He was enormous. Because I did he was not such know a that. key player in that Wasps team winning European Cup with right. Warren Gatland early on, like really early in his career. And he became, as a youngster, enormously hyped up, but ended up only really I mean his last game for England was two thousand and eight. Like, right. he played for England for 2007-2008, and then was just never fit to get back in the team. Oh, wow. I mean, I vaguely remember that kind of thing. I just don't remember the hype train at all. Yeah, was it yeah. Was it, like, bigger than the Jack Willis hype train? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. enormously bigger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It was... The Jack Willis hype train is sort of, he should be playing for England. Mm. But we know we've got Tom Curry, who is, who is better than him. Yeah. Like, this was... What about was, the Sam Simmons hype train? Oh, nothing was bigger than the Sam Simmons hype train <laughs> that he not. brought on for himself. Yeah. But yeah, just had endless, endless knee injuries. It was the same knee over and over again that kept reoccurring. Right. Eventually retired in 2012 at quite a young age, and is now a doctor at Basingstoke and North Hampshire Hospital. Oh, sweet. Good for him. So clearly spent enough time in hospitals and went, I like this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Stay I can get used to this. Uh, or, or already am used to this. Yes. But then, as I say, so Tom Reese scores England's third try on 50 minutes. The other two haven't come in the last few minutes of the first half. And that is it. That's it for England just doing anything in the game. Yeah. Like, they basically shut down at that point. Other than, until, until Andy Farrell comes on. Yeah. And Andy Farrell does a couple of things that... There's a moment around the hour mark, so around 10 minutes after the try, where the USA have had most of the ball and they've done nothing with it. They've had a lot of ball in their own half where they've just done nothing and they've mm. just kind of chucked it around one or two phases at a time, not look threatening at all. They look <laughs> broadly useless. But the commentator says, England have been very frustrated by the bravado of the USA to hang on to the ball or to have the ball, which is one of the most insulting, patronising bits of commentary I've ever heard. I mean, the bravado of them not to roll over and let England score these tries. How dare they actually oppose their opposition do they not realize they are england they are our team it was just like because the usa hadn't really done anything like no. these were two shit teams they out shitting up, each other like yeah and as i say like they they, they like, defended all right yeah um for the most part it, watching how shit the usa are makes you wonder or realize why they wanted the super eight yes of course oh god let's not go back to the super eight <laughs> But yeah, you're right. Like 
that's that's a really like horrible way of viewing like oh these guys have turned up but like they they don't realize that like, they're just meant to be our whipping boys like, yeah they're meant to be like the equivalent of the missus you lock up in the basement <laughs> so you can live the dead mouse yeah yeah because the thing is i think and they mentioned this a few times like they'd seen australia and new zealand absolutely smash their competition yeah in the days leading up yeah do you think there was an air um, of jealousy to it maybe? i think so i think there's an element of like well we're like them why aren't yeah, we like them yeah but also the fact i think england had lost to france in two warm-up games then they lost to argentina and suddenly it starts to look quite dodgy doesn't it yeah yeah that's really to be fair it's a really interesting opening few games we've had of this world cup isn't it mm. to say that three of them have been you always know which team's going to win it. Yeah. It's quite interesting that when you put that in context, because there is probably to certain aspects of ITV's rugby coverage, it has happened before where there's been like an almost su- superiority complex. Yeah. Of like yeah. England oh, are above everyone else. I mean, I can call out Clive Woodward. Like that's, that's yes. a fine thing. He's obviously one of those. But clearly that's a narrative that they're almost like told to go with. Yeah. You wonder if this was, if that message you needed passing on in this instance. So, the other thing, England bring off the bench a guy called Peter Richards. I've never heard of Peter Richards. I wrote in my notes, Peter Richards is a shit and also who? (laughs) I had no idea who he was. And when I looked it up, he's got a a mildly fascinating footnote career, right? Right. He was first called up by England in 1998, but didn't win his first cap until 2006. Oh, interesting. So he was called up by Clive Woodward, right, in 1998 as a youngster playing for London Irish. Brian Smith's London Irish at the time, you know. And he then, right, he played against New Zealand Maori and was potentially in contention to be on the bench against the All Blacks as kind of there. It was famously the the England tour of hell where they lost every game. They got battered by the New Zealand Maori, you know, and then all-time biggest loss to Australia, which Clive Woodward seemed to overlook when he talked about Eddie Jones's lost to the Springboks being the worst ever in English rugby history, forgetting the fact that he lost by like 90 points to Australia. So it was during that tour. Peter Richards then went out clubbing in Sydney after they played Australia, two two separate nights. Clive Woodward first time sat down and was like, don't do that again. He went out the next night. And he was like... (laughs) What a guy. He was like, all right, fine. I'm not... Look, that was your last warning. It's fine. You'll play against New Zealand Maori when we get to New Zealand and that'll be it. Then you want to keep your head down and behave. He then, the night before they played the New Zealand Maori, right, he went out again in Auckland. <laughs> I think Peter Richards just became my hero. The moral of the story is, if Clive Woodward told you to not go out clubbing, what do you do? You go out clubbing. You go out clubbing, obviously. So, Like, Peter Richards just, he, every time he walks into Clive Woodward's office, it's opposite day. So, <laughs> Peter Richards then gets in after the game. Oh, sorry, it was the night after, whatever, it was during the week after the mm. news of the Maori game but before they play the full thing yeah yeah, he goes out again a third time Clive Woodward's told him not to go out and he's gone out right Clive Woodward that then due to fly to South Africa for the final leg of the tour to play the Springboks and Clive Woodward goes no you're flying home instead <laughs> so so he can go out at home yeah so Peter Richards flies home doesn't play for England in the entire Clive Woodward era <laughs> because he because he went out there he just loves said, going out yeah just loves going out so much that he prioritised over playing international rugby. I love the, the thought that he brought that approach everywhere with him. By the end of that tour, Clive Woodward was having to say, don't make that tackle. So yeah. we would have to make tackles. <laughs> well, yeah, so he then gets dropped and it isn't until Andy Robinson takes over. No, until Brian Ashton takes over that he actually gets called up and ends up playing. 
Because uh, Brian Ashton was like, mate, love this guy. I Want think, this energy in my I think Peter Richards got called up after Lawrence Delalio made himself available. So they could <laughs> yeah. both go out clubbing together. Yeah, he could take to all the Romanian restaurants Exactly. Once. Like, Peter Richards clearly sets a lot of money aside to spend on drinks. Clearly. <laughs> Lawrence Delalio's got a lot of drinks to buy, and Peter Richards got a lot to Pre- drink. Precisely. And... Look, it was a big round, 30 grand that Lawrence Delalia spent on his round of drinks. And I can only assume that Peter Richards was a member of his party. Evidently, he must have a strong tolerance for alcohol if he's going out three times in a week on tour in international rugby. That's heroic, man. I'm so in awe of that. That is some proper, like, like imagine if Finn Russell wasn't world class and he was a scrum off you never heard of from London Irish in the noughties. Like, how great is that? So yeah, that was that was that was Peter Richards' career. He also spent a spell during the. I've never heard the... of him, but he's become my favourite player in this team. So shortly after Clive Woodward re-signed a new contract with England, he signed for Benetton <laughs> and played for them for a bit. Because he's like, well, there's no one getting an England team. Might as well go out in Italy instead. That's hilarious. Then yeah, came back. I love to him. Wasps and then Gloucester and then went back to London right. to fill in his career. Finish his career. What a brilliant guy. He's he feels like he accidentally turned up to the wrong World Cup. He wanted, is, to, he wanted to play in the 1987 tournament yeah. turned up and his TARDIS had landed him in 2007. So, oh, well, I don't know what to do about this. I'll just go out. The thing is, he was definitely a dickhead. Yeah, but in the yeah. context of this English team, what a hero. What a hero. Like, imagine the looks Andy Farrell was giving him when he, that was how he was preparing. <laughs> he was sat next to each other on the yeah, Exactly. And Andy Farrell going, like, like, being such an intense bloke. And, like, you look at how Owen is, like, mm. you don't get that from nowhere. That's not by coincidence. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, all, like, you have to prepare in the most meticulously driven way that you possibly can. Peter Richard just goes out. Has <laughs> <laughs> a few bevs. He does one of the worst dive passes I've ever seen. In my it's really life as well. funny. It's really funny. Clearly, he had a few tequilas before he did it. Please so talk us it, through it. It just felt like really like um, his hips were not synchronized with the rest of his body. Yeah, like it just felt like he began the motions of a dive pass, forgot how to do it, and then just kind of like winged it the whole way. It was brilliant. He manually moved his arms, then his shoulders, then his hips, then his knees, then his lower legs. It was fantastic. It was just like he just he goes for the knife and he just drops it in front of him. It's very very. I, f- good. I forgot to mention the trajectory of the ball. Yeah, which just <laughs> lands in front of him, like an inch in front of him. It's terrible. It's brilliant because there's a moment of confusion where the USA then pick it up and just go. Did you really just do that? Like, were you meaning to do that? They have that moment where they're like, they pick up the ball and almost stop like it's rude to have the ball. Like you did that. That was clearly an accident and an honest one at that. Do you want this back? Almost. So nothing happens for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, And then the USA with about five minutes to go. Might even be less than that. It's in the pretty much the final play. Like, not the final play, sorry, final 10 minutes. Yeah. They end up in the 22 through sheer fluke. Like, it's just England making mistakes on their own rugs. It is as soon as they sub Jason Robinson off, which I know has nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's a happy coincidence. The thing about how deep hookers is stood is everyone is going in isolated to every single tackle. So their ball retention is probably like 10%. They're losing about as many rucks as they're retaining. They have, they play this weird formation and usually formations are based on forwards mm. and the way they run. But instead, this is an all-inclusive one called 1, 1, 1, 1, <laughs> 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. And then there's the halfbacks. And then the halfbacks, yeah. Um, yeah. But they'll link it all together somehow. Yeah, exactly. 
quickly. And everyone else is just clearly scattered to just run a random line off Hercus. And then they forget that if the plan fails and they get they have they get tackled, they then have to do a breakdown. And they clearly did not prepare that far ahead in training. England go off the feet at one breakdown, the USA kick it downfield, they get turned over immediately. Yeah. But then England do a terrible clear out on their own ball and the USA somehow fluke the way onto the five meter line. At which point <laughs> Delalio just goes like, well, I've had enough. Even before that, can we just address Mike Hercus's tap penalty? Oh, of course. Yeah. Where he goes for it. He he could literally pick his method of scoring. He could pass it. He could do anything. And he just goes, I'm just going to run into the opposition's biggest player Joe Worsley. So he's kind of looking. He's like, well, there's definite space next to me. And everyone drifts off him. Yeah. 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 And so he goes yeah, like... he doesn't get much help. I'll give him that. But you can see him think in real time oh, there is space for me to score here if I don't give the pass. <laughs> I shall not give the pass. Yeah. I shall throw a dummy instead. Runs I shall into Joe Worsley now. instead. Yeah, which uh, is exactly the time that Joe Worsley needs to cover 10% of the gap. Yeah, exactly. And he runs into that 10%. Because fun fact about Joe Worsley, he's fucking huge. He hits hard, doesn't he? Yeah. But he hits people. The Lawrence Delalio fun time. Mm. Do do talk us through it. So, um, shortly after this, like England just give away one penalty. They're about to give away another on their own try line. Delalio just goes off his feet and he's like, I'm just going to lie here, mate. I'm just going to lie here, guys. I'm done. So the referee's like, no, I've had enough. He kind of, everyone, all the England players walks away. And he then goes into his pocket, pulls out a yellow card. And England like, who's it for? And Delalio just goes, I'm off. I'm going. <laughs> Pete, are you coming? I'm gone. Look, <laughs> yeah. I've got 30 grand worth of drinks to buy. I'm, I'm going off. No, Delalio walks off looking disgusted with the referee. Like he looks so angry at the fact that they've had the, the insolence, the audacity, the bravado to send him off. Him, Lawrence Delalio. At one point also, the commentator just says, Lawrence Delalio, like that. And I thought they were inviting him to comment because I'm just so used to Lawrence Delalio commenting on every game. So yeah, so Delalio gets sent off. He heads off and sits in the sim bin and immediately the USA score off the line out. The Delalio walk of shame is really quite something, isn't it? Yeah. It's a real spectacle to watch that. There is just a real, there's a moment where like, you just look at him and just go, you twat, what are you done? You I was twat. eating as that happened and I yelled with a full stuff mouth, way, get gone, <laughs> uh, which was fun. Um, but yes, Moe Akiola scores on debut. Yeah. He drives over and he's absolutely buzzing. Yeah, um, yeah. I love his response to this. And just generally the USA is like, you know, it's good that somebody's excited to be here. But yeah, no, that was great. Um, and then they cut to Lawrence Lully and he looks so disgusted. Yeah, no, oh, that was like, my fault. Oh. He looks like unbelievably angry to be involved, to be there. Like, how can you let this happen to me, Lawrence Delalio? But yeah, Moyakul is like spin and grounding are both really good. Like he does a really good job to finish that try, so mm. fair play. The commentary say that the USA deserve a try, which on balance they probably do. I don't know if they do. I don't they, think anyone deserves a try. This game no, should have finished like 9 They six. deserve a try for putting up with being there. Yeah. They deserve a try for the fact that they've they've been through 75 minutes of this. That's true. Uh, so they might as well have something to show for it. Like, it's, it's a token gesture, yeah. that try. They then kick back off. Paul Emmerich commits a murder. Um, Spear tackles Ollie Barkley and gets a yellow card. Properly disgusting tackle. It's like awful. it's horrible. Do not go and watch that. No, it's seriously, awful. it's like it's one of the most violent, scary. Like could have paralysed Ollie Barkley. Yeah. He wouldn't be able to write his columns. It, that, um, that's one of those. That I'm shocked he got yellow like, because the commentators even said back in 2007 when it was barely yeah paralyzed. yeah. So that has to be a red. Like yeah. how on earth is he giving a yellow for that? And they were spot on. Like in any age of 
any sport, that is a red card. Like, it's so violent that you wonder if Paul Emmerich was secretly over Volley Barkley's misses. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> just stop locking her in the basement yeah, all the time. Exactly. Just sticking up for her. You know, it's just like, he clearly been listening to loads of dead mouse uh, while that trial was being scored. Yeah, she's like, "Oh yeah, I've got, I've got to, I've got to commit a violent act on Ollie Barkley now." <laughs> we've, least, we've all had that. Yeah, we've all had that. Every time we've listened to Dead Mouse Five, England then kick downfield, and the game goes on for eighty-three minutes for some Fuck reason. Me, why but does he not want to finish? Referee Jonathan Kaplan, who I prepared some stuff on, but we're not going to do it because we've talked for too long. Yeah, he, I mean, Nazi Jonathan Kaplan, as previously yeah. discussed, he. Just goes, well, I don't want to finish this game. I'm having a good time. It's bloody, it's a terrible, it's good that horrible you are, game. Mate. Yeah, so I might as well just drag it out a bit longer because I am a Nazi. <laughs> and eventually he blows a full time and we yeah. all go, thank God, and turn the game off. Yeah, the one interesting that happened, thing that happened towards the end of the game was Andy Farrell making a break and offload. Oh, and yeah. Me, and me going like, oh, wait, he has the same running style as his son, obviously. Yeah. But that's hardly like a, a, a groundbreaking piece of insight. Yeah. But yeah, eventually John McCabe finishes the game. It's like, thank God, it was terrible. Mm. Should have blown it five minutes early, mate. Should we quickly do Dick of the Day, Man Let's of the Match? Let's do it. Let's do it. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's do Man of the Match first. Okay. Um, I think the only thing in this game that is not terrible is the English scrum. Oh, okay. That's um, a good, good call. So I think the English scrum goes really well. I think otherwise, all of the England backs play badly, broadly. Quater plays okay. I wouldn't I think, say they all play badly. No. As a unit, they don't function. Yes. As a unit, the England backline attack doesn't function. As a unit, the English kind of carrying doesn't function. The English lineup doesn't really function. The USA lineup doesn't really function. The USA scrum doesn't function. The USA's backline doesn't function. The USA's forward carrying really doesn't function. But the USA's kicking game doesn't function. England's kicking game basically doesn't exist. Barkley does not kick at all, mm. which is a problem. As I said, a lot of times you say aimlessly playing around the halfway line. The only thing I think functions well is England scrum. So on that merit, I could give it to one of the front row. I feel like they probably deserve it. But I also think probably if I'm picking a player, if I was doing like player ratings, mm. the player with the higher rating would probably be Ben Kay. I thought you might um, say that. I think that's fair enough. So I think, shout out to both England props, but I think it's Ben Kay for me. You weirdly might have talked me around there, actually. I didn't really think about the, the scrum aspect of it, mm. as, like, picking my match. Literally, I've written down, maybe Josh Lucy, because he makes two breaks. That's true. And yeah. that's that's... Like, he did two positive things, which in this game is a difficult thing to kind of pick out. As as I said at the start, like, Ollie Barkley was extremely involved, did a lot of good stuff, made yeah. loads of breaks and stuff. As I say, these days, like, I'm inclined to look at his performance and go, like, oh, that's quite poor. But actually, for what it was in 2007, I suppose. he was good. Yeah. The one player, I'm not giving him the match, the one player, I was extremely grateful for Jason Robinson in this game. Yes. Like, whenever he got the ball, he looked like something might happen. So I was going to give him man of the match. But I think you've taught me round on the whole thing about the because England front row were completely dominant. Yeah. Uh, and there is no doubting that. So yeah, man of the match is Phil Vickery. Cool. For sure. Yeah, um, I can go with that. And like, he looked competent in all of the other stuff he did around the park, which he wasn't really asked to do much, I suppose, around the park. Like, England were meant to have like a decent structure. And Phil Vickery, as captain, did a good job. So, sure, he's man of the match. Yeah. Dick of the day. I don't know where to begin. So, I... For the whole game, I had written down Ollie Barkley for not seeing Paul McCartney at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah. But then something happened with five minutes to go. I saw Lodge Delalia walk off, and I literally wrote down, yeah, go on then. He's <laughs> dick of the day. It's Lodge Delalia, because yeah. it's just like, oh yeah, well, I've got an excuse to give it to him now. Can I nominate one dick of the day? Go for it. I found the BBC's live blog coverage of this game. 
And they, before the game, their featured comment was from M3A2C7. Okay. Right? Sounds like Who said, I'd say 50 points is almost certain. The England second 15 put 50 points on the Eagles at the start of the summer, but I expect the Yanks to play out the skin today. However, there would definitely be at least 50. <laughs> was that Harry the dog? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, there's a bunch of all of this being like, oh, England were a nightmare, but they're going to be so good today. Etc, etc, etc. And it all goes horribly badly from there. So, I mean, the dick of the day contenders are all the way through the team. I think, frankly, Mike Herkus has enough disastrous passes and kicks and so on that even though he both doesn't play badly, but also he's like, they're individual moments. Uh, I know what you mean. Chad Erskine, I think, has a a few really rough passes. But I think you then look at Ollie Barkley. You look at Jamie Noon for ruining a try by kicking Josh Lucy in the leg. <laughs> That has to be up there. I've just realised I've given Man of the Match to a man who... Yeah, got away with it. Saved the one tri-screen opportunity (laughs) USA had. Go on, carry on. Um, Jamie Noon. I'm tripping up Josh Lucy. He's about to score. I think that would have been my leading contender, other than the players, (laughs) right up until Lawrence Deladio gets sent off. And that is so funny that I am nominating Lawrence Deladio as my dick of the day. It's just so on brand for the podcast that... The first game we see of Lawrence Delalio, we both have to give him dick of the day. Like, we've chatted a lot of shit about him before, because, let's be honest, right, he's just an easy target, Lawrence Delalio. Sure. I mean, it does mean he's now tied as dick of the tournament with Clive Woodward. <laughs> I did consider him. <laughs> I will admit, he had no involvement in the game, but I did consider him. So, that brings us through. Are we done? Yeah, Are we done? I, I We've talked so. for far too long about it dog shit game yeah we have please join us next week when we'll hopefully be joined by another guest what a tournament what a tournament i can't wait all right we'll see you then until then thank you very much goodbye bye mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.